Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 84, and I'm so excited to share my conversation with Brian Peck with you. But before I do that, I want to just say thank you for your patience over the last few weeks, as I haven't had an episode in a couple of weeks. I've had a busy schedule at the Secular Student Alliance, and I'm running for city council in Pasadena, and a variety of other things that have taken uh, some of my time. I was up in Reno, Nevada, speaking at the University of Nevada in Reno, and I've had a couple of really cool events at USC. So it's been a busy fall, and uh, but I'm back on the podcast. I have some really great episodes coming up, but today we're getting things started again with Brian Peck. And of course, Brian is no stranger to the podcast. He's been on the show a few times. He's even guest-hosted the podcast a couple of times. And today we're talking about rethinking religious trauma. There's been a lot of talk in the secular community about religious trauma. Over the last couple of years, religious trauma syndrome or RTS has been very much in the discussion. There is a conference coming up this uh, coming spring uh, called the Conference on Religious Trauma. So there's just a lot of talk and a lot of things being written, a lot of blog posts, a lot of activity on social media with the ex-evangelicals and people that are leaving abusive religious communities and talking openly, in some cases for the very first time, about the experience of that religious abuse and what it's done to them. I feel like for a long time, people have been afraid to come out and talk about the experience that they've had in religion and from religious authorities in their lives, churches, institutions. And it's been a very first person, very anecdotal. And I think that's super important. And as the online community has evolved, as more voices have joined this chorus, I think people have felt, and rightly so, more encouraged, more emboldened, safer about sharing their experience of religious abuse uh, with the wider public and empowering still more people to express themselves. And I think this is this is good, a good thing. You know, people uh, who are living in the shadows, who are living in fear, uh, is not an empowering and safe place for anyone to live for a long period of time. And so this desire uh, to come out and share one's story is a really powerful thing. I mean, when I did the Year Without God blog, one of the, probably the most frequent communication I received from readers was their 
having gone through the same thing or even maybe simultaneously going through the same thing in their life. And they wanted to connect with me uh, because it's just natural. We want to share our story with someone who understands, who can relate. And, uh, and so more and more people are doing that. And as that's happening, there's been a lot of talk about trauma. And what Brian and I are going to do in the next few minutes is talk about um, the differences between abuse and trauma um, and the ways in which the community can begin to rethink what we mean when we talk about trauma and how we approach uh, a response to it, both um, community response and, and a clinical response to the experience of trauma in many forms. But of course, specifically here, we're talking about religious trauma. And in this conversation, we will sort of talk about other types of trauma as well and how it affects our bodies. What is the physiology of trauma? What is the... Um, effect on our on our bodies, on our nervous systems, and then, of course, on our lived experience. Brian is a licensed clinical social worker. He received his Master's of Social Work degree from Boise State University and completed the required postgraduate supervision and training to gain his clinical licensure. He's a member of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and serves on the steering committee for the Social Work and ACT Special Interest Group. He's an active member of the National Association of Social Workers and has served on the board of directors for the Idaho chapter, as well as several terms as branch chair. He's originally from Pennsylvania and currently lives in Boise, Idaho with his wife and two boys, where he loves spending time outdoors, sharing conversations around the fire pit, enjoying a cup of home roasted coffee and living life as fully as possible. To find out more about Life After God and all the stuff we're doing, uh, you can go to lifeaftergod.org. When you get there, you'll see all the links to uh, our social media. You'll be prompted to sign up for our newsletter. And I encourage you to sign up for our, for our newsletter and to, and to follow us on social media. We do a lot on Facebook. There's a, a private Facebook group for members. And if you want to become a member, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash life after God. Join as a member for just $5 a month, and I'll add you to the private Facebook group where we can have uh, more conversations about the things that we talk about on the podcast. We occasionally have live hangouts with guests uh, that are meant for, for the members of the podcast. And as you'll hear in this uh, episode with Brian, we're talking about having a follow-up to this, a live hangout where we talk a little bit more about Religious trauma, people can ask their questions and begin to understand how they can apply these things in their own personal experience. So again, without any further delay, here is my conversation with my good friend, Brian Peck. Brian, welcome back to the Life After God podcast. It is so great to be here, Ryan. I'm always excited to talk with you and and to be on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're no stranger to Life After God. Uh, You're as much a part of this community as I am. I, I know we've said this multiple times uh, on the show and in person, but it was only a few months after I started that you and I met uh, virtually, and then it's been sort of nonstop since then, just uh, sharing our uh, life stories together and our expertise in different areas. And so it's really great um, to have you back officially on the show. You've even hosted the show a couple of times, yeah. um, bringing in really cool guests that you're, that are in your, um, circle of influence. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just great to have you back. And, and, but for those that are maybe tuning in for the first time, uh, I like to think that there are still those people out there who are 
finding the podcast for the first time. Yeah. Um, sure. Can you give us just a little background? And I don't want the whole episode, obviously, and we've talked about this, uh, to be about your personal history so much, mm-hmm. although I do want to set the context. Uh, we're going to get into some really exciting things that you're working on, um, resources that are really uh, designed to like touch a, a, a really urgent felt need in the sort of post-theistic community. But before we get into that, I just would love to hear, uh, you know, the the five to seven minute version of your history with religion and how you found your way out and how you got to what you're doing today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I was, I was raised um, within the conservative holiness movement and it's a very kind of small niche um, uh, evangelical movement that um, it's really hard, hard to explain all the the nuance of that movement, but it's um, very conservative in terms of, uh, dress standards and, um, you know, women wore dresses and had long hair and no jewelry. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of religion is, is focused on, um, you know, purity culture, um, is, is driving a lot of that. And, and, you know, women, you know, bear the brunt of that typically. Um, and so, yes, that was my, my growing up. I, I made it as far as one year of Bible college before, uh, things started to kind of fall apart for me. And I think, you know, growing up in a really kind of closed system where, Mm. you know, I went to, um, you know, Christian uh, school, K through 12, and then off to Bible college. And um, I was, you know, taught that the secular world was maybe a scary place, you know, non-believers didn't have morality. And, um, you know, we just had these these caricatures of of what it meant to be a non-believer and and when I started to to meet folks who um, who weren't religious but had you know the same or higher levels of compassion than, than I did and um, you know care deeply about humanity and making the world a better place, um, all that kind of religious upbringing um, y- you know kind of backfired in some ways. Mm. It was designed to protect me from the world and and what actually happened was it. Um, it just really fell apart when, when I realized that you can be a really decent human without, you know, a supernatural belief, um, or without being part of a a religious community. And so, um, I like to tell people that I, I, I left religion, um, largely due to, um, my, my religion wasn't big enough to allow me to be the compassionate, caring person that I wanted to be in the world. And so, um, you know, that, that really, um, after I left uh, Bible college, I started, uh, attending Penn state where I lived, um, kind of part-time at first. And it was really scary. I, you know, I, I don't know whether I've shared this publicly or not, but I remember the first, um, class I went to, it was a sociology class. And I remember sitting in my car for like an hour before the class started and just terrified, you know, I was still, wrestling with questions of faith and, um, you know, going to a secular university seemed scary. And there was just a lot of anxiety around that. And, um, and that persisted for a while as I, you know, my faith was challenged even more and more. Um, but then also my connection to my own humanity and the humanity of others continued to expand. And, and, and at one point I realized that, you know, my beliefs were actually harming other people who I, who I'd come to care about. And that 
kind of dissonance that happens in those spaces. Um, I just couldn't sustain that and, and maintain my faith. And so, um, yeah, I, I like to, I like, I like to credit compassion for, mm. um, for my exit from, from that fundamentalist religion. And, you know, I tried on a little bit of more progressive forms of Christianity. Um, I think like a lot of folks who come from fundamentalism, it's hard to transition kind of seamlessly through the more progressive forms of religion because you have this idea kind of built in that it's all or nothing is black or yep, white. Exactly. So, I mean, if you are a progressive Christian, um, you might as well be an atheist <laughs> yep. from, from my perspective. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think that kind of accelerated that process for me in some ways, which interestingly, um, in graduate school, after I had left the faith, was no longer, you know, a believer, no longer part of any religious, re- religious community, um, I, I realized that that swing from one extreme to the other was happening for me. And mm. in fact, my, my wife, who um, I was dating at the time of kind of the, the last um, phases of, of leaving the faith, um, so she witnessed, you know, kind of that part of my journey. Wow. Um, she said to me, um, Brian, you're, you're still a fundamentalist. You're just fundamentalist about different things. Mm. And, and that really hit me. Um, I realized that while I could defend my new beliefs as being, you know, objectively um, healthier, uh, more compassionate, better for the world, um, I was still holding on to those in this very kind of all or nothing sort of way. Yeah, and, a friend of mine talks about like yeah. beliefs being, you know, one thing is what you believe, and another it's another thing how you hold those beliefs. And right. we all have beliefs, even if they're not supernatural mm-hmm. beliefs, and it's like how we hold them. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Can continue. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, and I think that's that. That, that really is is what I discovered is that you know s- switching out a set of beliefs for a, a new set of beliefs. Um, I mean, that's maybe a helpful process to go through. But when you are holding them as tightly as your original beliefs, there's something about that that just doesn't allow for the flexibility, doesn't allow for the the kind of openness that that I. Um, you know, find useful in, in, in being a human. And so, um, you know, I realized that I needed to do something. And, and I also recognized kind of during that time that I wasn't alone in this struggle. I think a lot of folks who who leave uh, fundamentalism um, don't have that kind of um, ability to be with uncertainty, that, that, that void that happens after you leave certainty um, quickly wants to be filled with some other form of certainty. And, um, and so, yeah, I realized that, you know, I needed personally to do something, um, you know, to, to, like you said, um, change how I was thinking, not, not just what I was thinking. And, and so that, that really started me on my journey to, you know, discovering and developing, uh, kind of antidotes to fundamentalism, ways of kind of being with uncertainty, increasing psychological flexibility, and uh, it just happened that in, in my graduate program, I was introduced to, you know, some resources and therapy modalities that would, um, that really helped me in that process, uh, which has led me to um, focus in my clinical practice on, on, you know, increasing psychological flexibility and all that that entails, but then also um, really focusing on, on, re- on religious trauma and how that impacts folks as well. Did you always... Well, always did you from the time before you lost your faith were you always thinking about 
psychology or social work as a career path or a academic interest? Yeah, interestingly enough, I I wanted to to be a teacher, and um, that was my undergraduate program. Was I was going to go into education, and um, I did a few um, kind of practicums in school settings, and realized that um, I preferred working one on one with folks, mm. and um, just the structure itself didn't allow for the flexibility that that I needed and felt. I mean, I, you, when you see behind the scenes of uh, the school system, um, there's a lot of politics involved. And, and I admire teachers who can, you know, work through that and still show up for, for, for the students. And I, I realized that I wasn't um, particularly cut out for that. Sure. And so um, for me, I was like, no, I want to I work with individuals one-on-one. And that started to be down a path of, uh, of working in more of a psychotherapy um, kind of direction. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so, um, it's so great to just, you know, have followed your um, the emergence of your the new phase of your career the last few years and it's coincided with in the public domain the growth of of people being much more willing to talk about their experiences their negative experiences in religion and um, I, you know I don't know quite how to credit these things journalists will often ask me like why do I think there's the decline the precipitous decline of religious um, practice and observance in the United States today, or why are so many people leaving or whatever? And, you know, sometimes I think it's the internet, it's access to information, access to one another, uh, so that we don't feel quite so alone, so that when we say, I had this experience in fundamentalism, there's a chorus of people who chime in to say, me too, and then mm-hmm. actually me too kind of, uh, uh, you know, brings up the point that it's not just within religion that people are being more open about their abuse, but in the general public as well, the mm-hmm. Me Too, the Me Too movement, um, which began with uh, women of color um, courageously speaking out about the abuse that they've experienced at the hands of their partners or the church mm-hmm. or whatever, and grown into a, a mass global movement. Um, and so, and now we have the exvangelicals, um, you know, kind of hashtag exvangelicals, people that are openly talking about uh, how they've experienced harm at the hands of evangelicalism. And there's, so there's just a lot of like churning, I would say, um, mm-hmm. a behind the, the boat, you know, as, as it were, yeah. uh, of, of people who are much more vocal about being ex-Catholics or ex-Mormons or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, or even some that, and some that I've had on the podcast that were ensnared in very unique cults, you know. Right, um, yeah. So what, what is your sense of why people are more open about their abuse or, or willing to speak publicly about the kinds of harm they've experienced at the hands of some kind of fundamentalism or belief system? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had <laughs> the answer for that. For me, I do have a sense of, of you know, what you mentioned, this awareness that happens when one person speaks out. Then other people join in. I think that that awareness builds on itself, and in a, in a lot of ways, I think that's probably um, doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of the shift that we're seeing as a society and as a culture. Um, you know, whereas before, people wouldn't share their stories or wouldn't be open about that. And in as as a clinician, I recognize that shame is often connected with with trauma, and so and and shame will will silence us, will keep us hidden and isolated. Uh, because mm. there's a sense that I, I should have been able to handle it, or I should have been able to speak out, or, or, or protect myself, or do what was necessary. Wow. Yeah. Even though we, even though we recognize that um, in in 
the majority of the cases, that simply isn't the case. You know, your body was um, doing what was necessary to survive. And that was, you know, part of your autonomic nervous system, which you had very little or no control over. And so um, for people to to kind of push through that shame to speak their truth publicly allows for, for others to connect to that. And so I think, I think that's probably um, the majority of the reason why things are shifting and changing. You know, our parents' generation didn't do therapy very much. Um, right, yeah. And, and, and I think, um, you know, our generation has, has been more open to therapy, and, and, and I think we've, we've done a fairly decent job at developing, you know, emotional, <clears throat> excuse me, emotional intelligence. And, and I think the current generation has, you know, kind of taken it one step further and, and is looking at the world through this uh, more of a trauma-informed lens. We're, we're recognizing systemic issues and structures in our culture and society and how power and control impacts our, our human well-being. And so I think just a lot of these um, factors are, are kind of combining to, to, to create this big shift. And when we recognize that... Um, Whereas religion maybe was a place where you found support and connection and community through this trauma informed lens, um, oftentimes it's also a place that maybe demanded a lot of, of you personally and maybe overwhelmed your nervous system in ways that you didn't feel safe and okay. And, and, and so I think what people recognize that, um, you know, there's a cost associated with that connection and sometimes that cost outweighs the benefits and, and, and folks are, are, are able to, to exit um, in a way that feels okay to them. I think we still have a lot of work to do in terms of um, helping people move through that process effectively and then also, um, you know, finding the support and connection on the other side uh, because folks who have been harmed by community um, – Hmm. It's really hard to connect, I think, and, and again, from a trauma-informed lens, you know, that developmental trauma that happens when um, your caregiver is also the source of, uh, you know, of your abuse. Um, uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, biologically, we're, you know, kind of drawn to that connection and that need for support, and then also we're being harmed by that, and it, it really does a number on, on one's nervous system. And I think that's where um, a lot of us who, who've exited maybe a high-demand uh, religious group um, often struggle to find connection again in, in community outside of that. And, and I think, um, I mean, as you're aware, and I think maybe more of your focus and the work that you're interested in doing is, that, is answering that question, how do we build community in a way that's safe? Um, and how do we help folks, you know, find that connection, that safety inside of that, recognizing that they're bringing with them um, the sense of community could be dangerous or, or risky to them? Right. Yeah, I think we don't often pay enough attention to the ways in which um, to to use maybe a loaded term, you know, that community can be triggering um, right. for people. So you've brought up a few things here that I want to touch on. So let's I want to take them in sort of sequence. If you could, I've been around you enough um, to know kind of some of the term, terminology that you're using, but let's just go back to basics for a second and talk about trauma. So what is, mm -hmm. if you were to give like a, you know, five minute, you know, physiology of, of trauma, like mm -hmm. how, when you say trauma, what is, what is that exactly? Because I don't know that we have, and I think this gets to a larger question and challenge that we're facing in the secular community that we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think without a clear understanding of what trauma is and how it lives in our bodies, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to then know what to do about it if we don't have a you know very good diagnosis of the problem. 
Yeah, I certainly agree. And, and I think, you know, um, the field of trauma is, is, is evolving and it's only been recently that we've been, you know, studying it, studying trauma and, and, and really beginning, just beginning to understand how it functions for us humans. You mm. know, we, we think back just a few generations where, you know, um, trauma was, was, you know, just limited to, you know, war vets and, and folks who had experienced, you know, these very significant, um, traumatizing events. And, and now we're beginning to recognize that, you know, trauma, um, impacts a lot of us in different ways and being exposed to maybe these lower level kind of threats over a period of time can have the same or even, um, more, you know, uh, challenging effects on one's nervous system. And so, you know, I think in, in, in the very kind of bare bones, a way of thinking about that, it might be helpful to distinguish between abuse and trauma, because often I hear the conversation around trauma, and especially religious trauma, um, is really focused almost exclusively on, you know, this is how religion harmed you, or this is the abuse that you experienced inside of religion. And, and I value that, um, that we're bringing awareness to the abuse, but, but when we're kind of confusing abuse for trauma, um, it's not allowing us to have that next conversation of what do I do to heal and move, move through this, recover from that experience. Mm. And so in a a very, um, um, basic way of thinking about that abuse is the thing that happened to you. Mm. That's what you experienced. That was what, um, you know, what was said to you, what was done to you. And, and trauma is your, your physiological response to that event. And so we think about um, it in, in those terms. Um, trauma is kind of uh, what we experience when our nervous system is overwhelmed. And so if we have limited access to internal and external resources um, and a, a demand is placed on our system, that can be enough to overwhelm us. And, and we move from feeling safe and social in, in, in our environment to feeling fight or flight. And when we're in this kind of fight or flight response, which is, is very, um, I think a lot of us have a sense of what that is, you know, our hearts racing, you know, our, our bodies preparing to, to fight or defend ourselves or to escape to safety. And, and when we're able to effectively escape to safety, then we can enter safe and social again. We can feel like, you know, I'm, I'm at ease and I'm okay. Trauma often exists when we are unable to escape, when we're unable to fight back effectively or neutralize hmm. the threat. And then we go into um, into this kind of freeze collapse or this please appease, this kind of, um, from the polyvagal theory, it's this dorsal vagal response where the organism kind of shuts down to conserve resources. It's preparing to die um, in, in extreme cases or disconnecting, disassociating from that experience. And so when we think about... Um, you, you know, the adaptive function of that um, nervous system response, it often allows us to survive. It allows us to live another day, but we, mm-hmm. we, we persist in this sense of powerlessness. Um, we don't have the ability to do what is necessary. And in, when we talk about trauma living in our body, it's that kind of nervous system sense, right? Our, our, our body is always assessing for risk and, and connection in our environment. And, and when we have a sense that the world is a dangerous place, the world is a risky place, a scary place, then, then we're kind of living in that, in that physiological state of, of, of threat or that, that state of, of freeze collapse or shutdown. 
And, and, and so we recognize trauma is, is what lives inside of us in response to experiences that we've had in the world. We begin to recognize that um, if we're going to move through trauma, if we're going to recover at some level, it's going to require more than simply pointing out that you've experienced abuse. It'll require more than telling ourselves a different story about that abuse. And, and I think a lot of us recognize, too, that on the other side of abuse, we can realize that, well, I'm no longer a child. I have, I'm an adult. I can make choices. I can do what's necessary to protect myself now. We know that cognitively. We have this kind of you know, story or narrative of that. And, but our body doesn't know that our body still senses that I'm powerless. We're still kind of trapped in that space where I was unable to do what was necessary to defend myself. And so we need to communicate with our nervous system, give it the resources it needs to, to, to sense safety, connection, strength, power, autonomy again. And that allows us to, um, to make some progress in, 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 in healing. The word that keeps coming to my mind as I listen to you talk about this is the word memory. And I, I wonder if it's, I know any metaphor is probably going to be lacking, but is it true in a sense that our nervous system, as you say, um, develops a kind of memory of how the world is? And if we don't address it in later life or, you know, whenever we come around to realizing that we've experienced trauma, um, that we sort of live with this residual memory of what the world is and our the way our body perceives the world the way our brain perceives the world is in this risky way rather than in an open way that someone else might experience it if they hadn't experienced the same mm-hmm. trauma um, and then it's sort of like re-educating your your mind to to see the world differently is is that remotely yeah no i, th- I, th- I think you're really onto something there and in in memory is 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 probably an okay word to use there. Um, we think about, you know, how, um, you know, we humans have evolved language. And so um, we, we become very enamored with, with, with words and with story and narrative. And, and what, what's actually happening, though, and um, as we're learning more about this, um, we have a physiological state that we're in, and it's based on what our, what we, um, appropriate, um, like we, it's called neuroception. It's this kind of internal sense of, am I safe or not? Hmm. And this is our body, you know, detecting threats or connection in our environment. And then, and then responding this very visceral sense, like I'm preparing to fight or, or, or flee, right? I'm, I'm in that physiological state. If I'm in that state, my, the story that I create from that, is going to be a story of threat, a story of, you know, activation. I need to do something to protect myself. And, and, and actually, uh, Deb Dana, a researcher talks about that as, you know, story follows state, the physiological state happens first. And then mm-hmm. we kind of create a narrative that makes sense of that. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so when we think of memory, we often are re- referring to, you know, this cognitive process of organizing, um, you know, experiences in, in, in this kind of cognitive way. When we mm-hmm. talk about it in terms of the nervous system, if you felt powerless and your body has not done something subsequently to reinforce the idea of having power, of saying no, of pushing someone away, of doing what's physically necessary to protect your body, then you can have a cognitive understanding of safety 
Um, but that will do little or nothing <laughs> to impact mm. the felt sense of safety. And, and so I think that's where um, approaching trauma from this kind of cognitive space can be useful at some level, but it doesn't really impact that physiological state. And, and, and when we start to address that, because that memory does persist in terms of like the felt sense, you know, I just, I feel unsafe in the world. Um, community is risky. Um, certain situations are, are not safe for me. And until we can have experiences where we, you know, where our body feels safe inside of those experiences, um, it, it, we can't kind of think ourselves out of trauma. We can't talk ourselves out of trauma. Right. And, and yeah, so, I so, feel yeah. like, yeah, I think, you know, when we think about our cognitive uh, abilities, you know, we think about learning uh, right. or or adapting or becoming, you know, someone quite different than we were years ago based on the things that we've experienced and learned. But you mentioned a while ago the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. which is this amazing capacity that our body has to do things automatically. So as right. I'm, you know, sitting here talking to you, I'm not thinking about breathing, you know, mm-hmm. I'm right. just, I'm, I'm not thinking, okay, heart, you got, you got to keep beating, you know, it just does it, you know? And, and I, so I wonder if it's like your, our autonomic nervous system also learns, you know, and, and stores up data, predictive data about what a certain kind of uh, presenting situation mm-hmm. might mean so that when we first experience, it's almost like the naivete of a child who meets a stranger and they're just totally open to this stranger sure. because they have no reason to be afraid of this person. And so their autonomic nervous system maybe doesn't detect a threat there or some, some measure of threat because the person's unknown. So there's probably an automatic sense of like, who are you? And, but then if that person harms the child or steals, you know, kidnaps the kid or deprives them of something... Next time, there's a memory, uh, like, a, like the autonomic nervous system has a memory of like, oh, here's a person I've never met before. Is that, is that kind of a little bit what's going on? I don't want to overdwell yeah, on this. No, but like, no, I think it's really great. Now, I think it's important to have this conversation. So I'm glad you're, you're, you're expanding that. I think for, for children, especially, the first six months of life are really important. But even the first seven years, their, their autonomic nervous system is still developing to the point that an infant doesn't have the capacity to self-regulate. You know, they require the presence of an external nervous system that's attuned and supportive. And so when you see kids meet strangers, uh, what's the first thing that they do? Who do they look to to see whether this is safe or not? You know, Mm. like Mm -hmm. you said, they're open. They're like, I don't know whether it's safe or not. They don't have that kind of felt sense. I mean, in some cases they may. But often they're looking to a parent or a caregiver and they're, and they're deter- detecting if, if their caregiver's nervous system is having a reaction or response to the event, then they're going to co-regulate, kind of follow that nervous mm-hmm. system response. And so that, there is a certain amount of learning that happens inside of that, but that's also their, uh, their nervous system is developing. And so you can imagine right. um, when we talk about religious trauma, we talk about developmental trauma kids who feel unsafe in the world because of particular doctrines or or the sense of um, i'm not i'm not worthy i'm not good enough i'm evil um, i'm going to hell whatever that is that that's placing this load on the nervous system and their their parents are also reinforcing that and there's no way for them to feel safe and i work with clients who who've, who've sat in my office and, and and shared with me that they've they've never felt safe in the world Part of working with trauma is 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 developing that sense of safety that right. becomes a foundation for healing, and um, that's why 
shock trauma or single incident trauma um, is often a lot easier to work with because a person may have a point of reference of feeling safe prior to the event. But if you're working with folks who never, who've never felt safe in the world because their nervous system didn't have the necessary resources to develop a sense of safety, um, then you have to kind of start from scratch. The beautiful thing is that our nervous system has the capacity to do that. It takes some intention. It takes some effort to, to work through that. Um, but that, that need to feel safe in the world, um, in, really is is dependent on you know our our ability to co-regulate co and connect with other humans you know i work with college students every day and there's an epidemic of um so many things i guess but um you know depression um loneliness alienation and suicide um and so many campuses that i'm intimately familiar with are experiencing um, tremendous loss, irretrievable loss, death, uh, mm. as a result of um, young people f- apparently, and I can't, you know, I'm not an expert, but apparently feeling like there are no options mm-hmm. to access a world that is safe for them. Right. And and I, and I think about resiliency and I think about some of the cultural memes uh, that I see almost on a daily basis about millennials or Gen Z uh, being fragile or being like having received uh, participation trophies. And so they have no idea mm-hmm. what it means to actually be resilient in the world and experience suffering in, and survive it. Um, and I wonder if you see anything generationally different about, um, you know, millennials and younger and the oldest millennials, let's be clear are entering their 40s so you know we were so used to talking about millennials and we think those young people Mm -hmm. um you know the oldest millennials i don't i don't know if you're actually technically a millennial brian but um i'm a gen xer kind of sort of in the middle of gen x but Mm -hmm. but you know the the gen z my kids age teenagers um early college students actually all college students now are not uh are not millennials according to this, you know, right. rubric. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about the intersection of like resiliency, teaching kids how, how to be resilient and, and what you're talking about with trauma? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot there and it's, um, there's no real, e- there's no easy answer to that. Uh, a lot of factors. I think just looking at through the lens of the nervous system though, th- there is a case to be made for, um, creating a safe context for people to experience challenges, uh, and then uh, and then overcoming those as as a way of kind of developing a, a resource free nervous system, or, or maybe we might refer to that as resilience. And so, you know, there is definitely a case to be made for that. Um, you know, of, of going through difficult times, but within a supportive community. And I think that's where. Um, you know, we're probably not doing <laughs> as well as we could be doing in supporting folks when we just have this, you know, individualistic, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you can do it on your own kind of approach, because that's, that's missing one of the most important sources of resilience is, is that kind mm. of connection with other humans. And so right. I think on one side, you have um, maybe not enough access to, um, challenging situations in a supportive context in which you feel, you know, strong and powerful and capable. And then we have this kind of stigma or this, you know, shame that we're, you know, imposing on folks saying, well, just do it on your own. You can handle this. And, um, actually recently, um, last week, actually, I, I, uh, posted something on my Facebook page that's 
I don't know if viral is the word, but it's, it's certainly um, reaching a lot of folks right now where I, um, the original meme was, you know, trauma is not your fault, um, but healing is your responsibility. And that sense of, we're, we're kind of saying, well, trauma is not your fault, but you know, kind of you is. better do something about it. It's, and, and we're not we're not collectively taking responsibility as, as a culture. We're saying that's your responsibility. We're, we're we're placing that 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 additional burden on survivors, saying like, well, I don't want to feel <laughs> responsible for you know your suffering, and so therefore it's just yours to solve and figure out on your own. And when we look at it through this nervous system lens. Um, people don't heal on their own. You know, it requires the presence of another attuned nervous system for a person to feel connected, to feel um, safe in the world. Because otherwise, um, we're just trying to imagine feeling safe. We don't have an actual sense of that. And that that does require our ability to co-regulate with another human. And so, yeah, I think, I I, I don't know that there's one answer to, um, you know, this perception that we have of millennials or young folks who are are struggling i think um you know but shame and stigma and pull yourself pull yourself up by the bootstraps certainly isn't isn't the answer that's not providing any any uh, resource for them um in fact in fact that's also you know contributing to that kind of freeze collapse response that sense of powerlessness um and I think this might be a, a good a good time to just share, uh, just briefly. I, I really <laughs> geek out about this stuff, but um, just briefly um, from this kind of polyvagal lens of of how the nervous system works. Um, you know, the, the the earliest system to evolve was this dorsal vagal response, this freeze collapse response, and and we share that with reptiles as well, um, where when something is overwhelming, we just kind of you know you know, feign death, have that kind of, you know, powerless experience. And then the second system is this, you know, fight or flight response, this um, sympathetic um, nervous system response. And that's a very activated and powerful and strong response that allows us to do what's necessary to survive and or or to escape safely. Um, And then the third um, system to evolve is this ventral vagal or the safe and social um, part of the nervous system. And it actually is a branch of the dorsal vagal. And so the dorsal vagal is this kind of immobilized, in fear. It's this powerless and stuck. It's this isolated, dark place. That's also where kind of depression lives in that that kind of physiology. And the ventral vagal also um, has that shared immobilization. It's what allows humans to be in the same room with another human without running away or without fighting. And we think about it from a purely survival standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense for two humans to be in the same room together because hmm. that other human could represent a threat to your system. And and so you should be in fight or flight, right? Just from a purely survival standpoint. You should never feel safe, <laughs> right? Right. Because better safe than sorry, you should view everyone as a threat. The rustle in the bushes yeah, could, be, for sure. could be a lion. Yeah. yeah. And so so the ventral vagal allows us to kind of put a break, uh, apply a break to this um, fight or flight response, which allows us to be in the same room with each other, allows us to be intimate, allows us to, um, you know, procreate, you know, live in community. And so, but that also feels 
it also feels like immobilized, kind of kind of being immobilized, right? And so, for for folks who who have experienced trauma, um, that sense of powerlessness, that sense of stuck, immobilized, can be triggered in safe settings, right? Um, trauma survivors mm. who are hugged by, you know, a loved one, that can be very difficult for the nervous system because it has that sense of like I'm powerless and that doesn't feel safe to me. And so the the point I want to make here is that oftentimes um, we, we humans want to be in this kind of safe and social and feel at ease, uh, feel open and connected. It, but we want to go from this kind of um, dorsal vagal place, this freeze collapse place. And we want to just kind of move up to this place of feeling safe and social. But the reality is we, we can't do that unless we go through an activated state. And so... This is, I think, it's really, really important for uh, trauma survivors to to recognize um, if you're feeling frozen and collapsed, and maybe in your religious um, history um, you've experienced like this adverse of control and power over your system, and then you're wanting to feel safe and social and connected again, it, it's going to require you to feel activated, to feel like I'm fighting, I'm pushing away, I'm escaping, I'm doing what's necessary, and Unfortunately, in our society, we we stigmatize things like anger and aggression, um, mm. and so essentially, we're we're kind of keeping folks stuck in this freeze collapse state because we're not allowing them to access their strength and power. And so, wow. when people are expressing anger at religion because of what it did to them, I want us to recognize that as being a really valuable and important state. Uh, for them to physically feel powerful and strong, and instead of kind of you know, um, you know, saying hey, you're you're not supposed to be that way, or dismissing that mm. experience, finding a way for that to be safe, but but also finding a way for that to be intentional as well. Yeah, we generative. Yeah, yeah, we don't want it to be just this explosion of like, I'm just angry and frustrated, and, <laughs> and then that feels unsafe then because most folks who have lived in a state of freeze collapse when they enter an activated state. It feels unfamiliar. It also feels very kind of dangerous and risky. Like, what if I hurt somebody, right? Like that's out of that's control. A, big, a big response for trauma survivors is I don't want to hurt anyone. And so right. um, to, to recognize that, no, we can find very intentional, powerful, strong ways for you to push out, protect yourself, do what's necessary, you know, harness that energy in a way that leads to connection. Instead of saying, you know, anger is this, this, this bad emotion that just, you know, keeps you from connection viewing anger as like it's this way for you to feel safe enough that you can connect and so anger can be in the service of connection and i think for me um that's just a really really powerful message to to give survivors to to recognize that that aggression that anger is necessary for you to feel safe enough so that you can connect oh that's huge i mean that that was a lot of light bulbs went on for me there i'm so glad that you uh went into that uh, shifting gears just a little bit um, and talking about the way that specifically religious trauma is being talked about in our, I guess I can say our community, whatever that means, yeah. like the group of us online that are, you know, navigating post-religious life, uh, post-theistic spaces, um, ex-evangelicals and atheists and all the rest. Um, there's been a, a movement, a kind of an emerging movement around what some people are calling religious trauma syndrome. Mm -hmm. But you've expressed to me some reservations about this terminology 
And more importantly than just the terminology, the the kind of practice that either does or doesn't grow out of the way that RTS or religious trauma syndrome is being talked about and deployed in the world. So I wonder if you would sort of just reflect on some of your reservations about um, religious trauma syndrome as a as a distinct idea and and maybe where we might see ourselves going from there. Yeah, and no, I'm really glad you're you're bringing that up. I I think I first want to to point out that I um, I really value the awareness to uh, religious abuse that that's taken place because of this focus on on religious trauma or religious trauma syndrome. And I think from the standpoint of raising awareness and pointing out abuse, um, you know, I think it's it's done a lot of re- a, lot, a lot of good. It's helped folks kind of connect to and maybe become aware for the first time that maybe it wasn't normal, quote unquote, normal or okay or safe to be exposed to some doctrines about eternal damnation or you know um, fundamentally broken from birth, um, like that that those doctrines and how they've been expressed in, in religious practice have been damaging to them. I think um, I can't underline that enough that that's really important work to raise awareness. Right. And, and so I think what, what's my reservations um, with religious trauma syndrome is that I think it gives the impression that it's focused on trauma. Um, when in my experience and how it functions in the world, it, it's, it's primarily focused on abuse. And, and again, I think that's important. Um, but I think when you're including trauma in, in the title itself, it gives folks the impression that that we're really focused on trauma. And if we think of, you know, again, back to what we talked about earlier, you know, abuse is the thing that happened to you and we should raise awareness and we should do all we can to prevent that abuse from happening because abuse often does lead to trauma. Mm-hmm. But if trauma is the thing that our, our body is, is doing in reaction or response to abuse, then, then that's a whole different conversation. Um, if you were to overnight change how religion functions in the world, eliminate it completely, make it 100% safe for humans, that's going to do little or nothing to trauma survivors who still have that lived experience of, of trauma that, that, that they encountered inside of religion. And so while I think it's important to... Um, make religion safer for humans or point out um, how it is harming folks because that really can be the first step to healing. Um, we need to be talking about religious trauma as actual trauma um, as opposed to just limiting that to a conversation about abuse. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think it's, like you say, it's a both and kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like I think awareness is important. Um you know, it's it's sort of like I, I work a lot in in my free time on housing and homelessness issues, and and I think one of the big issues around solutions to homelessness, for example, is raising the awareness that mm. there are X number of homeless people, and then some people think, well, they're all drug addicts. Well, it's important to educate people that actually quite few uh, people become homeless as a result of being an mm-hmm. addict. Uh, many people become addicts on the street, as I suspect many of us would as well. But, you know, this education, this awareness raising is so important for the wider public Mm -hmm. so that we can come up with some policy solutions that actually work. But raising awareness about homelessness doesn't do anything to bring someone from the street inside, you know, into a home. 
It's two. They're both important, but they're really different mm-hmm. jobs, you know. And they right. can coexist. The same organization can even do both, but they're not the same thing. Right, and I think I think that's where um, that that awareness um, from a place of helping clarify what it is that we're speaking about, you know. And I think that's that's been my my biggest concern as a clinician is, you know, folks will will talk about religious trauma syndrome as, you know, some folks will talk about it as like this official diagnosis or it should be official diagnoses, and and again the focus remains on, you know, this is a problem and we need to hold religion accountable for what they've done, um, which I completely support, and that's not treating trauma, right? And so I think that's where, um, if we were to clarify that, there's this focus on raising awareness and, and and hopefully reducing harm. And then there's this awareness on once the harm has been done, once a person has experienced trauma, um, they require a different focus and, and no amount of, you know, holding religion accountable is going to, um, to shift or change their nervous system response. And, and I think furthermore, um, religious trauma syndrome has, has, kind of really been embraced by the atheist community as a way of, you know, stigmatizing or pathologizing religion. Religion is harmful um, and we need to get rid of it. Um, We need to speak out against how it's harmed folks, but we do it in this kind of really broad way. We, you know, kind of categorically condemn religion, which makes it really challenging or almost impossible to have a more meaningful conversation about, you know, the the component parts of that power and mm. control right and so we right. have this, we have this idea that you know religion is bad and if we get rid, rid of religion then the world would be a better place and we wouldn't have trauma <laughs> you know that's kind of uh, a bit of the impression that that we get from that conversation when we recognize that it's not that religion is is categorically bad but these are the you know the the component parts that contribute to a person, you know, raising the the possibility of them experiencing trauma. And if we start to talk about power and control, for instance, now we're talking about something that applies not just to religions, but secular community as well, um, yes, to organizations yes. across the spectrum. And so in some ways, it feels like religious trauma syndrome is, is, is almost a scapegoat this way for us to you know, say, okay, you know, it's these supernatural beliefs or it's this illogical beliefs. And if we just had more logic and reason, the world world would be a better place. And we, we start to place, realize yeah. like, no, we've kind of done that experiment and we, we, we're not better <laughs> in terms of yeah. like, we still have the potential for power and control to be used in these adversive, harmful ways. And so I think, I, I think for us just to be a bit more honest about that, um, as we, we, we still can maintain our sense of like, this these practices are harmful but then let's generalize those out to like how they impact us in different organizations and communities as well so that we're not just being like okay well i feel better because i pointed out how this organization harms folks therefore i don't have to take stock of like how how i move and 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 am in the world that could be harming someone else and and i think that's where yeah it, it, it it's it's a bit pie in the sky to think that if we get rid of religion then you know, what will solve, you know, so many of these problems when we're not addressing those problems, you know, right. at their independent level. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just going to tongue in cheek, you know, suggest that maybe we also need to have a, a diagnosis of secular trauma syndrome. Sure. Yeah. Um, because I, I have a lot of good friends and actually acquaintances just anecdotally and imagine how many more there are that I don't know about of people that have been seriously traumatized by being a part of a secular community. Um, you know, just recently a fairly well-known international uh, atheist organization uh, chose as its leader someone with uh, self-confessed uh, inappropriate behavior, sexual behavior with um, people that uh, has seriously harmed them, mm-hmm. you know, and this uh, secular organization has adopted him as their leader. And and it just, it's, you know, and I'm certainly not the only one to point this out, but it's been pointed out many times by by others much more connected to the situation than I am that the same people that are very quick to, I think, rightly condemn priests who have been accused mm-hmm. of molesting children and um, and so many other crimes, abusing their power in this horrible way um, without documented, you know, legal, you know, just uh, legal proof in a court of law type of setting mm-hmm. are happy to condemn those those priests for, for those um, what seem to be incredibly plausible by virtue of the volume of mm-hmm. accusations and so independent accusations and so forth, very credible claims are also very eager to defend their own uh, favorite person who mm-hmm. uh, is under the same kind of um, situation. So I, I think you're absolutely right in really singing my song in a way about um, identifying the the core traits that are mm-hmm. um, not necessarily because I don't think power is a bad thing. Um, I think we, you know, politics is about power, um, about who has it and who mm-hmm. doesn't. And if you're in an oppressed or a, a, a marginalized group, you you have to be talking about power. How do we mm, get more of sure. it? How do we yeah. fight back? But the abuse of power is, mm-hmm. you know, the power is such a risky and sort of a dangerous thing. And and I think to really identify these underlying causes, which I think religion are is susceptible to. Sure, yeah. And I think religion is susceptible to them in part because of their magical thinking. Right. Um, so I, I think there is something innate in religion, religious belief that gives rise to abusive behavior. But I don't think it's exclusive to religion. Right. You know, I think we can allow political uh, figures to abuse us because they hold this almost mystical power uh, over us uh, and our and our consciousness, and we sort of defer to them in this irrational way because of this almost magical authority that they have because they're famous or something. Sure. Yeah. Or, or someone like Harvey Weinstein, who I'm sure had an almost religious influence on people as they deferred to him and did whatever he wanted and were afraid of him at a at a level that is so like not normal a way to be afraid of a person. Right. Um, you know, and so I think these kinds of systems like you say, are broad in their application, not just to religion. And I think to to say yes and, you yeah. know, yes, religion religion is dangerous and there's so much more out there too that if we only pathologize religion, and again, I'm just repeating what you're saying, but agreeing with you that if we just pathologize religion, it also neglects the part of religious practice for a lot of people that was their escape. I mean, in right. my own personal story, I became... A, a convert, you know, at the age of at the age of nine, I gave my heart to Jesus because I found solace mm-hmm. in religion from an, a, a, a like severely abusive stepfather right. who was harming me day in and day out. And I went to summer camp and found Jesus as this most compassionate, loving person that no matter what happened to me would love me unconditionally. That was my entrance into religion. Of course, I 
later left religion, sure. as everyone knows. But but there's it's also not a monolith, you know, the kind of experience that people have in religion. Yeah, no, I think that's really great. And, and you know, the point that you're making about, you know, if we had a, you know, a secular a trauma syndrome um, and, and we could imagine maybe a religious organization takes that up as as their cause and points out how, you know, various forms of, you know, secular communities are, are you know, harmful to folks. And, and they wouldn't be wrong because of, of the same reasons that religion can be harmful for folks. But it wouldn't it would it would serve to be an us versus them kind of conversation as opposed to a more trauma informed conversation. And we wouldn't be taking they wouldn't be taking responsibility for their own, you know, um, part in 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 you know, oppressive beliefs and practices in their, in their communities. And so I think, I, 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 yeah, I, again, we're just agreeing with each other here, but to, for us to think about this with a bit more um, self-reflection and awareness, I think uh, can help us to maintain the focus on trauma. So, so we think about, um, you know, sexual trauma, medical trauma, religious trauma, um, if we want to add secular trauma inside of there, where if we maintain the focus on trauma, we're saying this is a context in which this happened, right? Um, if we, when we talk about sexual trauma, we 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 recognize that this happened um, within inside of you know that particular context, and are we wanting to pathologize um, you know? human sexuality well of course not like we would never propose that or the workplace yeah but we would, nobody should go to work yeah but, but we certainly would you know address like what's damaging or what's harmful inside of various forms of of, of sexual experience and and we can talk about consent and how vital and important that right. is and how you know power and control can be used to exploit and and, and, and harm others and 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 that's 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 not as painting with a broad brush that that somehow human sexuality or, or sex is bad where we're saying mm-hmm. no like there are these things that happen inside of those intimate relationships um, that can be beautiful and, and and full of connection and and a resource for one's nervous system as well as incredibly damaging and and so I, I think I I would love for us to have more of a conversation about trauma and less a, less of a conversation about you know this this you know broad brush religion is bad and 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 again i agree with you also you pointed out that there are certain religious beliefs that make it easier for folks to um both um abuse um you know members of a community as well as get away with it and and i think we also need to point that out as well you know uh, well we need to protect our you know our our identity or our reputation or you know there's a lot of secrecy built inside of you know various um, relationships inside of religion, which also applies to other organizations as well. And so mm-hmm. if we, we start to point out like, these are the the factors that contribute to abuse. These are the factors that contribute to a context where trauma is more likely to, to, to occur. Um, then we can start to do things about that, as opposed to, you know, living under this illusion that if we you know, somehow condemned this completely and erased it from the face of the earth, then humans would be better. Um, we still would have a lot of work to do in terms of addressing, you know, issues of power and control and consent and, you know, on and on and on. Right. Yeah. Wow. And the time is just getting away as it does every time I have one of these amazing conversations um, with you or, or anyone else. But I don't want to to end here because there's some other stuff I really want you to. So, um, we're going to close out this conversation by talking about 
um, where we go from here. So we don't want to also be sort of guilty of just pathologizing sure. something, you know, and saying, well, whatever, you know, this kind of focus on uh, exclusively on pathologizing religion is bad. So like, where do we go from here? Yeah. I know there are organizations that are, um, you know, ha- holding events and conferences and things about religious trauma that maybe aren't using this religious I'm sorry, this trauma-informed mm-hmm. um, perspective without the sort of clinicians who are trained in trauma response and trauma um, um, healing. I don't know if healing is the right word there. Yeah, I'm cautious yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, there's, there's tricky words there for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just, um, but, you know, put a pin in the fact mm-hmm. that we don't have to talk about that right now, but uh, healing might be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, overstating the situation. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I want to give you a chance to talk about what you've been up to because I know you've been working on some really exciting things with some colleagues and other, you know, other trauma clinicians um, about a way to um, bring what you're talking about to a wider audience, both training um, clinicians, but also helping individuals uh, begin to find some relief and a way f- through and forward in their yeah. lives. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, I've, I'm just really excited about um, a shift that's happening. Um, I'm, as I'm, you know, connecting with other therapists who are and clinicians who are doing similar work um, in their own local communities, we're, we're discovering that there's been this, this, this sense that's been building under the surface that we need to shift the conversation um, towards a more tra- trauma-informed perspective. And, and again, I think maintaining the um, activist and advocacy work for reducing re- religious abuse, for sure, like that needs to continue because we haven't, we haven't, you know, done all that needs to be done in that arena. However, we want to provide um, survivors of religious trauma um, a more trauma-informed approach. And so I think a couple of things that we're in the middle of working on um, as, a, as a small group of clinicians who are wanting to, to, to have a more trauma-informed um, conversation, um, we're, we're actually um, wanting to introduce um, another concept that, that we think has the potential to focus on those individual component kind of pieces that contribute to abuse and harm as well as trauma. And so um, the, 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 the term that we've kind of coined and we're going to be opening up to the public as well as the clinical community and, and the research community is adverse religious experiences. Uh, this is a way to talk about um, the experiences themselves uh, the wow. practices, the beliefs, and how it's, you know, the structures. And and then we can develop a lot of um, data. Uh, we can um, talk with more nuance about a person's particular experience as they notice um, uh, the various types of adverse religious experiences. And so I think um, that God, will allow so us good. to, yeah, allow us to shift away from, this kind of broad brushstrokes and pathologizing religion out of hand and focus more on like what are the, the component pieces that contribute to that harm. And so I'm really excited about that. That's something that's happening right now. Um, that's something that will be, the public will become more aware of here very soon. And we're wanting to get a lot of feedback and input on, on really um, developing categories that are meaningful, uh, both for survivors, but also for researchers who want to pick up um, this topic and and do some more extensive research in that area. And you had also mentioned to me um, developing um, a collaborative with some other clinicians. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of, yeah, this adverse religious experiences, um, has kind of come from that collaboration. And, and again, um, we've already sent some proposals or one of our members has, you know, sent a proposal to a, um, a conference where they're going to present some of these ideas, um, hopefully get some abstracts um, published here soon where we can, you know, get the, the research community um, interested in this idea. And, um, and so like that's, that's been happening. Um, a, a few organizations that um, are kind of developing um, in, in the formative stages at the moment is um, the, the religious trauma Institute is something that, will be happening here in the near future. Um, it'll be rolled out in, in various uh, phases. Um, it's, it's, it'll be designed to provide that kind of clinical knowledge and background um, to, to help um, kind of educate, train, and support um, therapists, clinicians across the country, across the world who are working with, with religious trauma and provide them assessment tools, treatment resources, uh, workshops, training, um, consultation, and and so that's that's kind of what we're looking at underneath that um, umbrella of of the Religious Trauma Institute. And in fact, <laughs> I'm not sure when this is coming out, but um, there's a, a website, religioustraumainstitute.com. Um, there will be hopefully a landing page there very soon um, where you can you know follow what we're doing and provide your input as well. Um, part of that that work also will include, you know, working with religious leaders and religious communities. How do we yes, um, provide right. resources for them to, uh, from this kind of harm reduction perspective, and mm. and you know, reaching across those um, those boundaries to, um, you know, serve the same goal of reducing human suffering, and and recognizing that people suffer immensely when they leave religion. People often suffer inside of religion. People suffer outside of religion um, in, yeah. in the secular space, and, and we're wanting to um, bring this kind of trauma-informed perspective to um, to all those different areas, and 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 hopefully that collaboration will allow us to um, maybe sh- shift and change some things inside of r- religious organizations. That's kind of um, the goal as well. Another another um, a few folks I want to shout um, give a shout out to um, the Reclamation Collective is is a group that we've been collaborating with as well. And uh, Kayla Felton is a social worker with a really strong passion for activism and around this area of religious trauma and providing um, support for folks and providing these trauma-informed workshops, um, you know, online and in-person workshops where survivors can connect with resources and and find the support that they need. And um, um, Kayla, as well as Kendra Snyder, uh, who is... um, a licensed marriage and family therapist are are really heading that up, and I'm just super excited to be collaborating with them and working together on developing these resources to um, you know the psychoeducational content to help folks understand uh, religious trauma through this trauma informed lens. And then um, Laura Anderson, um, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, who's also working on her PhD at the moment. As part of her PhD, um, she created a, a religious trauma a manual, and it's a guide for mental health professionals to give them some background around what is religious trauma and how to approach that from a trauma-informed perspective. I've just been really amazed by this resource. It's about 100 pages, um, just packed full of really great information, and she's offered 
um, to to the Life After God audience a um, a discount code. You can buy the manual on her website, um, and I'll, I'll include some links in the in the show notes as well. But Religious Trauma fifteen um, will we'll get you fifteen dollars off that manual. And I personally think that it's um, while while it's targeted towards um, you know clinicians and mental health professionals, it certainly is written in, in such a way that uh, the the layperson could uh, gain a lot of uh, valuable information from that as well. And so, yeah, so there's just a lot happening um, that mm. that's really our focus is on um, specializing in and and really becoming. Uh, a, a resource for folks who um, want to be talking about religious trauma from this trauma-informed perspective. And, and we continue to support other organizations and other groups who are focused on that, um, pointing out abuse and raising awareness of how religion is harming folks. Um, but we want to really focus on how do we support survivors so that they can um, you know, recover and move, move forward in life. Wow, this is all so exciting. And um, yeah, I'll get some links from you. Um, so that for those of you that are uh, listening right now, uh, you're probably thinking, I want to read something about a few of these topics. Yeah, so sure. I, I will pick Brian's brain and get a couple of cogent links, especially the one to the, the manual that we can purchase. Um, uh, and I, I guess I just want to say sort of in closing that... Um, I'm how excited I am about the Religious Trauma Institute developing and the resources that you're going to be creating and providing. And I, and I think that the point I want to make about that is that in the vacuum, a lot of non-experts like myself and others um, that you may have encountered online step into that void really with good intentions to, to say, hey, I, I was harmed by religion and this has been my experience perhaps you've had a similar experience let me talk to you or with you about your religious trauma and sort of the thing just organically evolves from there and i think it's just in a, in a way looking back on this 20 years from now i think we'll see that it's right on time that a group of uh, clinicians coming together to say let's be more specific and more precise mm -hmm. in our language not for the sake of precision alone but for the sake of maximizing well-being and and really putting a finer point on it not to sort of like uh you know have this uh you know academic debate about something but mm -hmm. really to make sure that we're focusing on the right thing so that people can find the help that they uh that they need and um i don't you know something for another time maybe um and maybe we can do a, a, a live hangout about this with the Life After God community. Mm, sure. Um, is, uh, and I'll just maybe, maybe this is, we'll leave this open and this will be a nice little uh, cliffhanger for, for everyone, including me. Um, you know, I'm listening to all of this and I've had some um, abuse in my life, some from religion and some from not. And, and I, I, I wonder if there's a feeling out there among people listening that I'm having right now, which is, how do I know if I've experienced trauma? Because I don't, yeah. that's a big, bold thing to claim. Yeah. You know, that I'm like, it almost sounds, especially for a man my age, like I'm nearing 50 and, you know, I'm a masculine kind of uh, presenting white man raised in the Midwest by, you know, boomers mm -hmm, and sure, whatever. Yeah. So, so like that's my background. And so the idea to say, it almost sounds like, well, you know, I can manage this. I'm okay. Like I'm, on the other hand, I don't want to like claim something that is somebody else's provenance in a way. Like mm -hmm. to say that to say that I've experienced or that I've been traumatized by something maybe 
in some way makes light of somebody else's trauma or you know what i mean that whole that whole head game yeah so 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 i know we won't get into it deeply now but i i think um whenever we start to compare traumas um we we invite shame right This, this is a conversation where i don't i don't get to have experienced trauma because it wasn't as severe as your experience and i think that's that is kind of baked into this idea that trauma is this thing that happened to you and if you can tell if you can share that your experience was was more intense (laughs) or more uh, traumatizing than mine then then i feel like well i shouldn't be traumatized but if we think of trauma from a nervous system response and i think uh, maybe the the short answer to the question of um did i experience trauma or not when we start to view it through the the lens of the nervous system if your body is reacting and responding in this um, having this kind of trauma response, right? If you're in this kind of fight or flight mode or this freeze collapse mode, and, and, it's, and it's in such a way that you're not not safe and okay in the world, um, I, I think we can um, talk about it through that lens as opposed to the thing that hmm. happened to you. You know, right. well, I, I just you know grew up in this family and I just had this kind of low level persistent fear that I was you know going to be raptured at any time or my family was going to be raptured and I wasn't going to <laughs> right. survive, you know, and we're like, well, that shouldn't, that, that, that doesn't I mean, I, I think it's silly now. I know it's that, that belief doesn't make any sense to me. And, and yet if we go back and notice that, that, that young version of you with, uh, you know, a developing nervous system that doesn't have a sense of safety and support. And we know that kids just don't have a lot of autonomy. They don't have a lot of power. And here's these adult nervous systems kind of reinforcing this idea that, you know, bad things are about to happen. We're like, huh, like that, that kind of looks like trauma, doesn't it? Because your yeah. nervous system is having this response, and and so I think I think that's where um, it's important to to not focus on on kind of comparing our traumas, um, and 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 then only you know we've done this as a mental health community for a long time. You know, um, even the the DSM criteria for PTSD is like you know did you witness someone dying or was this life threatening, and 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 now we're expanding that to include more complex trauma, developmental trauma that includes, you know, lack of access to resources and neglect and, and abuse at, at younger ages and over a period of time. And, mm. and when we look at that through the lens of the nervous system, we see that, no, those, that the, the reaction to that or, or the experience of, of those events is, is, is very similar and sometimes uh, more profound than, than folks who have experienced, you know, some traumatic event in, on, on the war uh, field. And so I think, mm. um, yeah, shifting that conversation to, you know, how do I know that I have trauma? Um, we want to be asking questions that focus on on how your nervous system is responding to your environment, as opposed to like you know what happened to you. Um, and again, I, I think, think it's huge. also really helpful when we talk about religious trauma syndrome that um, oftentimes is presented in these very kind of um, you know shock value oriented you know memes online or stories that are like, can you believe religion is is doing this thing? And and while there might be value in pointing out the abuse. Um, sometimes those sensationalized ways of presenting that is is is, is not helpful for survivors um, because mm. it doesn't provide them, um, you know, it's not it, it's overwhelming the nervous nervous system. It's it's you know presenting um, you know a demand on our system that that's not necessary. And so yeah, and yeah, can be even harmful. Yeah, can be. Yeah, I could go on yeah. and on, but I need to stop. No, <laughs> no, it's good. Like, and because I think then it really, I know, and I I sort of. See, I mean, I do- totally take your point, and I think then maybe the question becomes, um, you know, 
how do I know if I'm in a trauma response? You know, mm-hmm. and I think being able right. to, and maybe that's where we need to focus the question is like, how do I become attuned to my own body and my own responses and my own reactions yeah. to such a, to such a degree that I can s- notice this is a type of mm-hmm. response that you, right. that I would expect in response to trauma right. or response, response to abuse that would yeah. indicate some kind of trauma in my, uh, in my, in my system. Yeah. And how do I then, then what? You yeah. Know? And so maybe that's where we go in the next conversation. Yeah. And I think that's the the title of a workshop that'll be out before too long, that kind of religious trauma through the lens of the nervous system, right? So it's not just mm. focused on these are the various things that happen to you, but like, what does a, what does, what do you physiologically experience when you're trapped in an altar call service and you want to stand up and say, I see what you're doing. You are trying to control and manipulate me with fear, and I'm not here for that. I'm leaving. And, right. and, and that's what your body needed to do to protect yourself in that moment. But you were prohibited from doing that because of the social and cultural and other kind of you know, influences, the structure of the religion being accepted. You didn't have access to that strength and power, and you weren't able to do what was necessary. Where does that live in your body? How does that response show up? in other areas of your life where you feel this kind of underlying sense of fear and also powerlessness to do what's necessary. And, and I think that's a, a, a lot more helpful kind of conversation to be having as opposed to, you know, hellfire and brimstone messages are, are, are categorically harmful. I mean, I, I probably, I'm probably almost on board with that statement, by the way. Right, um, right, but, right, but right. These are the reasons why. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, th- I think you've probably made this point already, but, but it also, I think focusing on it from the sort of the physiological side also honors the fact that not every presenting abuse affects people in the same yes, way. Absolutely. So that you know, you know, people with lots of privilege might experience an abusive behavior, and it has a different, maybe less. I don't know if I want to use those type of uh, gradations, but you know, a, a less traumatic sure. impact on me. Um, because I did have more power at my disposal. I did have more resources for getting away from it or at least rationalizing Mm -hmm. it in my head. Whereas someone with less power in the system or in the hierarchy would experience the same exact, I mean, it explains why siblings, you know, that go through the same families respond differently to different type, the same exact events. So, um, and I I think think that's, that's really important when we think about how that would be useful when we're talking to believers who are like, well, there's nothing traumatizing about these beliefs because I'm fine, you know? Because like, I'm, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so here's the thing. This is how trauma works, right? And I think and, it's also yeah. really important as we talk about these sort of like online debates, you know, too, where it's like, oh, that's not so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was, you know, you know, my nanny was inappropriate with me and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, like buck it up, buddy, or, right. you know, stop being such a baby or, you know what I mean? These types of like, insults around people's fragility instead of saying like, Hey, we're all fragile. Um, you know, we might fracture in different places because we're different people, but, but we're all fragile and we're all susceptible to our nervous systems being overwhelmed, not just as children, but as adults as well. Absolutely. So anyway, we could, as you say, we could keep going like this forever. (laughs) So we're just going to have to draw an arbitrary line in the sand, which is right here. We're going to draw the line right here. And I'm just going to say, thank you for, your um your knowledge and of course your insight but also the way uh, and and I can say this from uh from my personal experience having wanted to have this conversation with you now for many months and having you hold off because you didn't want it to be you know in response to something or to be reactionary in any yeah. way but to really come from 
uh, its own grounded space of of offering a contribution to yeah. the community and to people. And so for your restraint and for your compassion, uh, just thank you. And I look forward to um, hearing uh, people's responses and reactions to this. If you want to um, to write to Brian, if you want to connect with him, I'll put all the links to his website, uh, Room to Thrive. Uh, if you haven't connected with his Facebook page, Room to Thrive, uh, definitely do that right away. Set the thing so that it notifies you every time he makes a post. That's what I do. Um, and that way you don't miss anything because I think the content that he's creating is, is not... Uh, you know, off the cuff, it's it's coming from a very um, and I can say this, and I'm I'm probably embarrassing him right That's now, all but good. <laughs> comes from a very uh, deeply informed place. Uh, you know, anytime he says something publicly, you can guarantee that he's had a dozen conversations with other people about this first and thought about it for hours and questioned himself and doubted his own intentions and then finally decided, yes. you know, <laughs> so I, I, he and I are similar people. So yeah, anyways, sure. thank you for all of that, Brian, for being the human being that you are yeah. and for, um, for offering your, your wisdom and knowledge to the community. Mm, thank you so much, Ryan. That really means a lot to me. I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you down the road. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you appreciated all of that. We went a little longer than I had originally intended, but I just kept thinking of things that I didn't want to leave out. And uh, Brian does such a beautiful job of explaining uh, all the things that, that I was asking him about. And and I think that's because, and a testimony to the fact that he is just immersed in the literature and the research that's coming out. He's in community with other clinicians that are also immersed in this. He's doing this type of work in his own personal practice in Boise, Idaho. And um, it's just evident that um, that he's not only an expert, but continuing to grow and learn uh, in this field. So I want to direct you to his website, roomtothrive.com. You can find out more about his practice, his in-person practice in the Boise area, but also his um, uh, the way that you can benefit from his experience as a client uh, online as well. And uh, his social media, you'll find links to all of his social media there. You'll find links in the show notes to some of the um, concepts that we and, and, and items that we talked about in this conversation. If you want to give me some feedback, if you had an idea or a thought that came to you as you were listening, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I would love to hear from you. If you have a personal story to share or uh, a thought or uh, a way to build on what you heard here today or an idea of where we might go next, please write to me. Again, it's ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Also encourage you to check out the website, lifeaftergod.org, and be a part of all of our social media conversations that are happening on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for spending a portion of your day with me. My name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God Podcast. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
The Chamba life is for everybody. So go to ChambaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChambaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.